Kevin. Yes. I know you've heard by now. Huge true crime podcast update. We all have heard. Curtis Flowers, the subject of the greatest podcast of all time in the dark in this genre, true crime, criminal justice. Charges against him have been dropped. They will not be refiled. It is over. Dropped with prejudice. Dropped with prejudice. And we recorded our podcast too early this week in order to talk Mm. about this huge development as a true crime podcast update. But I have some good news. Yeah. I got to talk to someone who knows a little bit about this case. I can imagine that you may have learned of this news about the state dropping the charges against Curtis Flowers. But I'm wondering how it felt in that moment for you to hear that news. I mean, I think that's an extraordinary moment. You know, even though at a certain point it seemed like things were leaning that direction, that it would be dropped... You never know until it happens. And certainly in a case that's gone to trial six times, you know, nothing in this case is unthinkable, you know. And so we don't know it's over until we actually see that document in our hands that the the judge, Judge Loper, has signed. Um, Really not until then would I feel confident in saying that, that this is done. Okay, listeners, we are going to drop my conversation with Madeline Barron, host and reporter of In the Dark, later this week. Ooh, the whole thing. The whole thing. But if you want to hear it right now, before we drop it, later this week, you can head on over to patreon.com slash partners in crime media and give it a listen there. Now back to the show. I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is Crime Writers On, the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, TV, other podcasts. And this week, in the 1960s, he was the cool surfer turned jewel thief that the newspapers loved. But was Murph the surf behind the brutal slayings of two women? We'll talk about season two of The Sneak. Then, the relationship between a murderer and a journalist resulted in one of the most famous true crime books. But to what lengths was the author willing to go to get that story? We'll review Morally Indefensible. Joining me to get that done is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, and certified cat lady, Lara Bricker. Hello, Lara Bricker. Hello, Rebecca. Also with us is the author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy, host of the Strange Arrivals podcast. That's all about UFOs, by the way. Toby Ball. Good evening, Toby. Hey, Rebecca. Also with me is my real-life husband, true crime co-author, former TV journalist and love of my life, real life partner in crime, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. Now, Kevin, uh, for those who listen to the audio version of this podcast, you were not here with us last week, which is why we didn't do a video version last episode. What has been going on? You have some medical news to share. What is going on with you? As if I don't know. As if you don't know. Well, (laughs) I'll tell you, last week, two weeks ago, I had uh, surgery on my vocal cords to repair my voice. A lot of you may remember that I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer uh, about a year and a half ago, and that required me having two surgeries. And after the second one, I was diagnosed with dysphonia, which is uh, something wrong with my voice, as, as you can tell. Basically, what happens is where you have the the vocal folds, the left and the right side, yep. they work together, they push towards the center to like make your voice. Like a hamburger, I guess. Yeah. Sideways hamburger, <laughs> like a hot dog bun. <laughs> so one side was very weak, and it wasn't quite getting into the middle. And so what they did is they put an implant to push that left side closer to the center so it doesn't have to work as hard. 
and um, I was told that uh, my surgery was a success. This is a great way to get people to watch Facebook Watch because you can check out my new scar. Ooh, sexy. <laughs> Look at that. It looked like a pirate went Looks for like me. Looks like you were in a fight with Murph the Surf. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I was very lucky because I went to probably the best hospital in the world to get this done, the Vocal Literally. Center at Mass General. Uh, you walk in and there are photos on the walls of all their famous patients, Julie Andrews, Adele, Roger Adele. Daltrey. The Adele. It's like uh, it's like going into Sardis. And they said that I could send a photo. Yeah. They'll put it up on the wall. Oh, they will. Probably by the break they, room. They better. Not anywhere near the lobby. <laughs> so, Kevin, <laughs> the guy who fixed your voice is the yeah. same guy who fixed Adele's voice? Uh, no. <laughs> he works with him. He's in the other part where they don't take insurance. You walk in with a check, you know that's that's big money. But for what I got done, this was a guy who you know wrote the wrote an article about. He was it taught by the best. Taught by the best. It's like having a house designed by a student of Frank Lloyd Wright. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So right now my voice is, uh, my th- there's still some swelling, and so the implant is where it's supposed to be. By the end of the month, it'll be where it's going to be. Mm. It's 100% or whatever that is, but uh, it's going to sound, it won't sound worse. It'll sound better than it had before. Right. Awesome. And I'm getting some function back that I didn't have before. Like laughing? We left the hospital, and Rebecca made a joke, and I laughed, and for the first time, like sound, like laugh sound came it out. It wasn't like... <laughs> Yeah, it wasn't like that. So, oh, God. so that's good. Nice. Yeah, th- I just want to thank everybody for you know all their well wishes that they've given me over the months, years. And, yeah. So hopefully uh, this is the end of an eighteen month chapter, and we can go back to just being goofy podcasters. And you can go back to being the guy who cracks jokes and then can actually laugh at himself. <laughs> Listen to you. Uh, oh, I did it. <laughs> You're chortling, Kevin. I'm chortling. <laughs> one star. Oh, yes. I won't be the only one getting one star reviews for my obnoxious <laughs> laugh. Yay. <laughs> a listener did write in to tell us that uh, she's a longtime fan of the show and her husband has never heard it before. Yeah. And he finally heard it for the first time this week and he thought my laugh sounded, get this, evil. Oh. <gasps> <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's because you keep twirling your mustache when you do I it. I am Italian. There's quite a little mustache there to twirl. <laughs> All right. Shall we get into our review for this podcast? May as well. We've gone this far. <laughs> Let's do it. My name is Jack Murphy, and we're taking you on a trip that uh, has already been in the papers and the magazines for 50 years, most of it. But it's a trip of the, uh, that is... Uh, an exciting adventure. Jack Murphy was a champion surfer who captured headlines in 1964 as a very cool jewel thief for stealing the world's largest ruby from a New York museum. And then in this flat case with all these stones, there were emeralds and diamonds and rubies and sapphires and aquamarine and topaz and all. And so I just cut a corner of that case out. And I had a large squeegee I found in a the janitor's box. And I just reached in and I squeegeed everything over there. So we got all of those. Though he later went to prison for an unrelated heist, he escaped responsibility for the 1967 brutal slaying of two women in Florida. This season, we will follow Jack on his journey from California to Pittsburgh to Miami, all the way up to New York City. To tell his story, though, we must also go down to Whiskey Creek, a small river in southern Florida where, 51 years ago, the bodies of two young women were found stabbed, bludgeoned, and shot. They had been weighed down by concrete blocks lashed to their necks. And the last time they were seen alive, they were getting in a boat 
with Jack Roland Murphy. In season two of The Sneak, The Murders at Whiskey Creek from USA Today's For the Win and Wondery, host Nate Scott talks with Murphy about his life of crime. But was the charming thief known as Murph the Surf a more violent man than his legacy portrays? Now, spoiler alert, we will be talking about spoilers for the first six or so episodes of The Sneak season two. So to remain totally spoiler free, just to get our thumbs up or thumbs down review, we will put a little time code in our show notes. So, you know, if you don't want to hear us chat about it, just go there. But we are going to chat about it. You mean like we always do? (laughs) Like we always do. Not that much has changed. (laughs) Now, we should talk a little bit about the plot of The Sneak. Mm -hmm. We're talking about a cool guy who was a legit Apparently, according to the host of this podcast, when they researched it and other reporters did as well, surfer champ, a high dive acrobatic champ, could do all these amazing athletic things, worked with as like the Walendas and did like escape artistry, uh, was very <laughs> handsome, hung out with other very handsome men, and then evolved into this, you know, all around super cool George Clooney-esque criminal in the styles of, like, Ocean's Eleven, like, pulled off these heists, did a lot of partying. Uh, Then, according to the podcast, he served very little time for the actual jewel heist. And then, along the way, was embroiled in this murder of two women. And, you know, some of the questions that the podcast raises are, you know, did he spend enough time in prison for the crimes that he committed? Is he a BS artist? Those are sort of the questions that are raised by the podcast. So, Laura Bricker. Yes. uh, Jack Murphy, Murph the Surf. We hear our podcast host talking to him, and we hear him in the first person in the podcast, and we hear him sort of spitting these fantastical tales. You've interviewed a lot of guys who have uh, been involved in a lot of things and women. <laughs> a lot of guys who've been in a lot of things. That's good. As and true, women. As a true crime author, that is sort of part of our jobs is to talk to people who very often spin yarns about the things that they were involved in. I would just love your initial impressions of Jack Murphy, Murph the Surf. Uh, legit guy? Full of it? What do you think? So he is one of those people, and I think Kevin can probably relate, um, having been out doing you know interviews. Like He is totally full of it. <laughs> How many times have you gone on one of those interviews as a reporter or when I was a private investigator and you're like, oh, for crying out loud, I wish this person would shut up because they're like, me, 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 and I did this and I did that. And you're like, yeah, okay, whatever. But within all of this fantastical talking, there actually is some truth. And so it's it's really hard because Obviously, this is why he was so good at what he did. This Mm. is why he was good at getting into these situations and swindling and getting involved in thefts and and being aligned with people later in life that maybe were not on the correct side of the law because he's he's a really good con man. But, you know, I totally could relate when I heard like the first episode and Nate was talking about how. The guy didn't stop talking for like an hour. It's like Toby. Yeah. <laughs> I've got your first six episodes like plotted out already. I'm like, oh my God. Oh, nine my God. episodes. <laughs> Here are the chapters. And there are nine episodes coming, by the way. It, it's hard because when you get involved with these type of people, you know, and, and the, the man that I wrote about in my true crime book was a similar spinner of tales. Um, hence the lie after lie. And so I actually had a bulletin board up um, when I was writing that book because it was the same thing. I was like, okay. He tells a good story about what's actually true. Toby, you know, this genre of podcast that sort of has emerged lately, um, I think you have a name for it where a podcaster is just 
kind of listening to the tall tales being spun by someone and then sort of as that that is the jumping off point for the story. What do you think of this genre of podcast? What do you call it? And what do you think of it? Uh, my term for it is the get a load of this guy genre. <laughs> <laughs> As opposed to the like zoink scoop. Yeah, exactly. Um, the first season of The Sneak was like this as well, where, you know, the story was quite a bit different, but it was another guy who had this sort of crazy grandiose story about like a, a much smaller time bank robber he pulled off. But, you know, he tried to make it as much like a movie as possible. So a lot of it was this guy kind of talking through his plan and his story and then, you know, having to get the BS meter going mm. and, and checking on the stuff to see, you know, how much of that can be confirmed. And so in this case, I thought what was sort of interesting, a, a lot of stuff kind of checks out, except for the violent stuff. And it's really the, the violence that ends up being the things they kind of have to either take on his word or they suspect him of that he's not willing to admit to. Because all the other stuff seems to kind of check out when they when they do the actual research. Mm. You know, I, I think part of what this podcast is about is, is this more Ocean's Eleven, like you mentioned before, or is it more kind of Reservoir Dogs, where this is a guy who's ready to kill people or have mm. people killed, and, uh, at least in that one circumstance where he said that that guy who was coming in and like hassling like his girlfriend and his partner's mom or something. And he said, yeah, you know, we... I made sure he had an accident. Kevin, thoughts? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's certainly a history in American culture about loving the suave criminal involved in a heist because it's brainy and it's daring and we can see ourselves doing that and it's nonviolent. Hmm. And so that's kind of like, like the Ocean's charm. Like yeah. Right, right. Yeah. But if you find out that there is an element of violence to the crime, does it sour it a little bit? Because, you know, Murph the Surf's legend was just sort of like they went in with a hammer and broke the glass and were really patient and made off with a golf ball sized gem. <laughs> but then you find out that, like, no, like he had a pistol and he was prepared to kill the guard if it came to that. As Jack told it now, the men weren't just daring, suave cat burglars, they were armed. And as Jack put it, if a security guard came up, he belonged to me. Um, in all the accounts I read, I don't recall ever seeing mention of a gun that night. It does kind of change a little bit how we relate to that story. And the, and it, like Toby says, it does relate sort of to the whole question of violence in his legacy. Mm. Because, I mean, even before you get to the the murders at Whiskey Creek... You know, he's dropping a lot of hints that, you know, he was capable of doing things in Boston and then, right, somebody has an accident. And that, you know, other reporters have said that he likes to kind of play the idea, get in your head that, yeah, he's dangerous, you know, and so you shouldn't cross him or whatever. So I, I want to see where this goes about how much is Nate and the rest of the sneak team going to chip away at that and give us a more realistic picture of who he really is. But it sounds like they're working from one primary interview with him, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't know a if they're going to... series, I think it Well, I don't know like, if they're but... going to be able to get to go down to another Christmas parade this year, given <laughs> the, the COVID crisis, <laughs> and do another interview. Which, by the way, that was my favorite scene of the whole podcast. The Crystal River Christmas Parade has the semi-surreal feel of any holiday party in the South. People wear Santa costumes and winter hats, but it's probably 65 degrees out. The entire town of Crystal River appears to be out for this. The parade has ATVs, fire trucks, old-timey cars, and, for some reason, more Jeeps than I've ever seen in my life. 
dozens of Jeeps, most of them decorated in Christmas lights. Well, I was going to say, there was one year that we were on vacation down. We, we got this houseboat through a timeshare one year, and we were down there <laughs> at Christmas, like like the week or so before Christmas, we're on this houseboat. There's like alligators or whatever. And then they had this like boat parade, and we were having the same route. We're like... So weird. Like there's all the boats with the Christmas lights and it's like, so when I listen to the scene, I totally related to it. Why were there so many Jeeps? Really good question. (laughs) Uh, Toby, were you surprised to hear how relatively unguarded the world's most priceless gems were at the Museum of Natural History in New York City that these completely unprepared and inebriated thieves could just on the spot without any planning after going to a bar, just get in there and, and steal them? Was I surprised that they had the window open? That side of the J.P. Morgan gem room had these large, large windows in it, large windows that uh, they kept open just so that there'd be an air ventilation in there. The J.P. Morgan gem collection was so valuable it wasn't even able to be insured. And the museum had left the windows open. <laughs> <laughs> I guess a little bit. <laughs> and the battery to the alarm was dead. I guess it was a more innocent time. I, I don't know. I mean, they do that and then they're like going out drinking with, you know, with the gems and they like travel with them in their pocket as they're going through, you know, the airport. I'll show you my ruby if you show me my diamonds. Wow, it's so big and hard. <laughs> Wayne is not going to like that. Yeah, Wayne. Wayne. <laughs> Let me apologize, Wayne, in advance. Me and Wayne are simpatico. So, you know, it's hard to imagine. Like, it certainly wouldn't happen this way today. Now, I kind of picture it's sort of the Mission Impossible, like Tom Cruise, like being lowered down on strings. and Nope, just going through an open window. And then his big escape, his big escape ploy was to pretend he was talking to a guy walking a dog. And yeah. the cops were like, well, that couldn't possibly be him. He knows this person. <laughs> you think the dog was involved? <laughs> There was a lot of like tape and glue aspects to the story. I guess just because of the the time that in which it occurred. I mean, one of the things that stuck out to me is we have the interview with a guy now uh, who's an attorney now, but his father was the prosecutor in the Gems case, and they sort of talk about how you know they basically kidnap one of the suspects, the the collaborators, and bring him to Florida to try to find this missing ruby, and his boss in New York won't let him like get any resources for it, so he just has to like get in the water himself yeah. and try to find this. Missing gem in Biscayne Bay. Laura, uh, have any of the prosecutors or defense attorneys you've ever worked with had to just do that kind of work themselves because their boss just wouldn't pay for someone to, I don't know, check and try to find out where the gems were? (laughs) To to like climb in a bay. Um, I can't say I've had anybody I work with do anything like that. But I mean, I will say I when I worked at the public defender's office as an investigator, I saw attorneys do all sorts of things to get the job done. Um, because they didn't have the resources of, uh, you know, other attorneys' offices. But no climbing in bays with uh, alligators, now. So when Nate and his producer do make it to Florida for their big interview with Jack to try to get as much of this story as possible, there is this scene after the Christmas parade where they go to the knockoff Applebee's <laughs> and he does agree to <laughs> meet with them. And I, apparently they've been trying to get in touch with them. This is the moment where he decides and, like, he meets them at the restaurant and we sort of hear the Nat tape of, of like, kind of what a jerk he is like razzing the waitress and then he like puts them in his car and then there's just this long tape of them driving around with this guy who was in prison for two murders and they know kidnapped committed other crimes and i don't know laura did you hear them even once say um 
hey, Murph, where are you taking us right now? They were very disciplined. <laughs> very disciplined. <laughs> yeah, I would have been like, oh, shit. Whoop. Sorry, Wayne. Um, I would have been you know, like, Nate was boy. like looking in the back and his guy is going, Shh, just keep rolling. <laughs> well, that was, like, that was like my favorite scene of the whole podcast. I was like, oh, my God. Is he going to take them out to the swamp and feed them to the alligators <laughs> or something? I was like. Or does he just want them to think he might, you know? He yeah, might. But yeah. I will say there is something to be said for being in that sort of situation. Like I was thinking about like there was one time that I was trying to get an interview for a case and it was some guy that I knew was like a convicted rapist and. And he would only talk to me if I took him to the IHOP. Oh. And so I was at like this IHOP and he Tutti was like. fruity, fresh and fruity for everyone. <laughs> yeah. He wanted like the one with like the extra whipped cream and strawberries. And I was of like, sure. And like, but I remember like sitting there and I'm just trying to be like, this is no big deal. I'm at the IHOP. And I could feel like Nate and his producer might have been in the same situation. Like, yeah, okay, great. Have the extra whipped cream. Just don't kill me and feed me to the alligators. Don't mention the FBI, whatever you do. That's right. Yeah. But Toby, there is like a ton of relying on Jack, a.k.a. Murph the Surf as their primary source. Now, as I mentioned, they do actually talk to other reporters in the podcast. And, you know, one of my critiques of the podcast is they do basically rehash a lot of reporting that other people did, which is fine. At least they're transparent about it. I talk to other reporters. And they so as a result, it does really seem like they are leaning on this conversation with Jack, a.k.a. Murph the Surf. That can sort of get you into some weird places as a journalist, right, Toby? Yeah, definitely. And I think that's kind of what this is is about, right? Is about, you know, hopefully, you know, we haven't listened to the last three, or at least I haven't, but we're going to let him talk and tell his story, and we're going to try and follow up on it as much as we can. But to a certain extent, what what can you glean from what he tells you? Hmm. And, you know, the two possibilities, one is Cary Grant or somebody, and the other one is this guy who's killed a bunch of people or had people killed. And that's a that's a much different proposition. And he likes to, I think, kind of play with the idea. He won't commit to the two people that they actually know were murdered. He says, we were told that we would get some money and blah, 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 this and that and the other. And if we don't start getting some uh, money, she says, if we don't get some money by tomorrow, she says, I'm going to the FBI. Wrong thing to say. Wrong thing to say in the world I live in. But then 30 seconds, they're both dead. But he's willing to make it sound like he definitely was involved in a bunch of things that you couldn't possibly follow up with because they're too vague. Like 26 murders in Boston? Right, yeah. Or some guy. Can't talk mm, about that. Some guy. Can't talk about that. So, you know, journalistically, yeah, it's kind of problematic. I think if you're, if you're going to enjoy this podcast, though, I think that's part of the enjoyment of it is trying to assess like what what is this guy's deal uh because the story's like it's 100 percent entertaining hmm. but it's also super disturbing if the violent stuff he did he actually did i mean that really makes him a total sociopath instead of like a fun-loving guy who does all these kind of daring things including steal stuff laura i had another journalistic issue with the podcast and i just want to run by you for your take mm-hmm. you know we hear him nate that our host say in one of the episodes, sort of after he, first of all, there's there's some just structural issues. In episode four, we hear a reference to the Whiskey Creek murders that we actually don't learn about what they are until episode five. And that was, I found very confusing when it was like, how did you feel when you found out he 
was implicated in the Whiskey Creek murders. And I was like, as a listener, I don't even know what you're talking about yet because I don't know what happened at Whiskey Creek. Mm -hmm. But then after we hear about the Whiskey Creek murders and what happened with these two women who stole these bearer bonds and then got involved with Jack and his crew and then sort of, you know, because they were unhappy with the deal they were being given as part of the scheme, one of them mentions on this boat ride with this potentially mysterious, like, fifth guy who was there that uh, she's going to contact the FBI and then these men kill her. And then we get this aside from Nate about how sorry he is that he has not put the victims into more of a frame. I want to apologize. So far in this podcast, we've told you very little about these two women. I'm ashamed of this. These women had their lives cut short, and they deserve more than to be a footnote in someone else's story. I will say, we're not doing this intentionally. We just don't know very much about Annalie Marie Moan or Terry Kent Frank. And then we hear this kind of attempt to do that by tracking down some of their relatives. And then in episode six, and this is the part that I found especially strange, he's like, I found one of their relatives. I haven't had a chance to call him yet. I'm going to do it later today. He says that in the narration of the podcast. Yeah. And then he and he names the relative. And then he names another relative of the other victim and says, you know, we found out that she not only has a mother, but potentially has a sister and, and gives that name before actually making contact, finding out if they wanted to be a source in the podcast. I found that journalistically problematic. What did you think about that section of the podcast? Yeah, that was like the CYA sort of section. Um, I felt like the way that it was presented didn't feel genuine to me because it seemed like it like an after the fact sort of, oh, we've got to put this in here because, oops, we're just like doing all this story about Murph the Surf. So I feel like there's another way that that could have been done and handled. Like they could have, you know, earlier on when they were talking about the girls and and working for this this uh you know bond person they could have given a little bit more information about them when they went you know missing and the murder you know is under investigation they could have given a little more information based on you know whatever biographical information was out there in the media because it doesn't sound like there's really going to be any sources that are going to speak directly to having known these girls, aside from Murph the Surf. And I mean, his story is not one that we want to hear when we're hearing about their lives and their lives being lost. So I feel like there was a different way that it could have been done. And I'm not saying they're not sincere, and I'm not saying they didn't want to include anything about the victims, but it was just the structure of where it was placed in the story seemed like sort of an afterthought to me. And it just, it didn't really flow. To me, it felt like a response to criticism they anticipated they might get. But they, but it happened. You mean from crime writers on? Well, but it happened so, I, I don't criticize people for not including a lot of information about the victims. I don't. That's not a criticism that I give because I understand that sometimes it's not available. It's hard to get. And also, yeah. and also sometimes it is not the story that you're telling. And in this case, you know, I think that. There was sort of a preemptive attempt to stave off critique, but the way it was done was so heavy handed, like, we are so sorry, we feel so bad. So now we're going to tell you that we don't know anything. And then we're going to tell you somebody's real name and tell you that we haven't called them yet. And to me, struck me as a little bit awkward. Well, I think at some point, and I don't think it really applies so much to this podcast, but I think there's a conversation to be had about how do you best, you know, if the if the idea is you're going to kind of honor the victims by telling some of their story, 
how do you best do that? Because I think a lot of times, even when people are spending time doing it, they're so intent on providing this completely positive image mm. of the person that it doesn't end up being all that interesting either. Right. It's, you know, every she lit up a room, you know, she was so kind, everybody looked to her you know, for advice, like all this stuff. Do that with your Keith Morrison voice, Toby. Yeah. But then, you know, and and I think an exception to it is the most recent Uncovered that we did in which they they talk about the victim who who was a complicated person who lived a complicated life. And in that case, it was interesting because they were willing to be frank about it. I I tend not to be too judgmental about not pursuing that stuff because so much of the time, it just seems like kind of people are too afraid and with justification to give a very interesting portrait of the victim because mm. they don't want to say anything bad about the dead, essentially. Right, right. Kevin, what were you going to say? Oh, well, I was going to say, boy, it seemed like a real tragedy to spend all this time and money on this surgery and you don't call on me in the podcast. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but we got to get to the murders for a second okay. here, these women. And I'm not buying Jack's story about all these other professional people that he knew and then one guy whose name he didn't know. No, of right? course you're not buying I that I mean, story. it's so weak. We hear like versions of that all the time. Right. I didn't know who that person was. Right. So he said they're covering for one of the other people there. I but can't I, tell you. But I tend to believe that story about the girls want to go water skiing and the two guys look at each other like that's how we're going to do it. Because those bearer bonds, all you got to do is have them. But it is very realistic. I mean, I've that seen no Die one... Hard. I know all about bearer bonds. But isn't it realistic that no one knew what to do with them? Like, it's like, yeah. that, that is the thing. Like... You mean like when they get like these giant jewels and they don't know how to fence them? <laughs> it's just a 535 carat ruby. The question, Kevin. Yeah. Why does every bad guy, uh, when they go to jail or prison, it seems, I don't want to say every bad guy, why do so many bad guys not only become religious, but actually become preachers? Are you buying that Jack is a full-on man of God at this point? Well, I mean, I can't see what's in his heart. I mean, he's still to this day <laughs> preaching, so I think that maybe... Did you hear him rising the waitress at that knockoff apple? Well, I mean, you can still be a man of God and still be a dick. I mean... <laughs> hey, Wayne, I'm looking at you. Um, Sorry, Wayne. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, I think he's still probably a man of God. Is he still insane? That's why he didn't go to jail, because he was innocent by reason of insanity or whatever. Is he insane? No. Ah, yeah. I don't know why he found God, but it got him out of jail. <laughs> exactly. I think that any opportunity that Murph the Surf has to be in front of people talking and talking about himself and have an audience is a good mm. opportunity for him. So yeah. we just watched, you know, Perry Mason, where we had the very, you know, charismatic minister with the crowd. Like, hey, if you're Murph the Surf and you love to tell a good story and your story of redemption, like there's lots of people that will listen to you. And I think he really just likes people to listen to him talk. Let's hang 10 brothers and sisters. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Toby? How What percentage convinced are you that Murph the Surf Surf has found religion? About 25%. <laughs> I don't know. I, I mean, it's interesting because he, he, at least so far, it hasn't come up at all. Mm. You know, he's talked about all kinds of stuff. He doesn't show any kind of, you know, he's not even hinting at repenting right. or, you know, now I've found a new path or whatever. <laughs> I mean, maybe he has. He just, that's the one part of his life he doesn't want to talk about. But he's talked about a lot of stuff that has not come up. Toby, it's not the one part of his life he doesn't want to talk about. He doesn't want to talk about anything that veers into him either having to tell a lie or being guilty. You know, it's like 
there's a fifth man on the boat, but I can't tell you who he is. Mm, you know, right. there's a guy I killed, but I can't tell you anything about that. But I will tell you about that time I shot a cop and the time I went to Boston and killed all those people. It's like, to me, it seems like the things that aren't true are the things he doesn't want to talk about. Yeah. That's just my impression. Just saying, he could have been on the church's Christmas parade float because (laughs) all the churches have a float in the Christmas parade. I'm just saying. (laughs) Yeah. I I would, you know, I would drive him. Ken has a new Jeep. I would drive him in the parade. (laughs) All right. I think it's time for us to do what we do. Should our listeners check out the sneak season two, a story about Jack Murphy, Murph the Surf, a jewel heist, some murders in a place called Whiskey Creek and a Christmas parade that involves a lot of Jeeps. Lara Bricker, thumbs up or thumbs down for you for season two of The Sneak. I feel like this might appeal to a different sort of listener than somebody that wants like a journalistic investigation sort of deep dive. This is like a fun romp along with Murph the Surf as he's like recounting the glory days of being a jewel thief and a surfer and God knows what else. So it's it's kind of an interesting behind the scenes look at somebody that you know, was involved in a number of criminal enterprises. And it's an interesting story. There are some things that I felt sort of problematic about it. Like there was definitely the after the fact addition of the victims and the murder case. And there was some structural things I would have moved around. But overall, I think it's a really interesting story. If you liked something like Catch Me If You Can, the one with Leonardo DiCaprio. I mean, it's that sort of criminal outwitting the police sort of story. And here's the criminal and he's talking like in that one with Leonardo DiCaprio, doesn't he like eventually turns and works for the authorities to help them outwit other criminals. So it's that sort of story. So if that's what you're into, um, I would say thumbs up. And that's what my recommendation is. Toby Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for The Sneak Season 2 about Murph the Surf and all of the crimes he did or didn't commit before going to prison and then finding religion. What do you think, Toby? This is sort of faster paced than a lot of the podcasts we listen to. It reminds me a little bit of uh, Keith Sharon's Crime Beat, the the first season of that, which was uh, about a bank heist. So, I, you know, I give it a thumbs up. You know, it's, it's not in my top 10 ever or whatever, but it, it, the story, I think, is interesting. There's enough going on sort of trying to evaluate what the deal with Jack is that that kind of adds a second layer uh, of things to think about. Um, the storytelling is, is pretty straightforward. It, it's basically easy to follow. Again, I th- you know, I think we pointed out the sort of weird aside about trying to find out about the victims a little bit more. So yeah, thumbs up. Kevin Flynn, what about you? I'm going thumbs up. We've talked a lot about when we do nonfiction, that we as writers and journalists, we either betray our subject or we betray the audience. And right now, um, Nate Scott and his team are, I think, about to betray their subject, meaning that they could just tell Murph the Surf story. But I think that they sense that it isn't all that he's portraying it to be. My prediction is that at the end, they got to resolve that because that's the conflict here, really, is that we're hearing the whole tale, but it's more than just sort of reliving the tale. It's an idea of like, let's test it a little bit. I like uh, Murphy. He's a tour. I could probably sit and just listen to him tell his crazy stories all day. He spins his tale as a hipster crime guy, and it was socially acceptable in the 60s to kind of like that. They wrote a book. There was a movie starring Robert Conrad about him. He's lovable and likable, but if you find out that he was actually violent and responsible for at least two murders of these women, it does 
sort of change our perception of him. So for me, thumbs up and you know, good job so far for these guys for not swallowing the lure. Uh, I'm a thumb sideways for this podcast. I can't say that You're it's... going to make me create a thumb yeah, sideways I, I, graphic? Sorry. I can't say that it's bad. Um, however, there are some things about it that bother me that keep me from being able to recommend it for real. Um, one is I think the writing is for print and not audio. Uh, there are sentences where you can literally hear the semicolons and commas like um, there's a sentence where they're describing the victim of a home invasion and they say a widow she lived alone I mean that's just not the way a person would talk and so I really do think this podcast could benefit from a script editor that knows how to write for audio there's a lot of moments like that in the show that pulled me out of it I do think there are some issues with the organization of the story maybe they followed Murph the Surf's uh, storyboard a little too closely because I don't really care about all of the ins and outs of of their conversations with him as much as I do about the crimes they actually committed uh, and what happened afterwards. And there's just a lot of just kind of indulgence to his his tale telling, which I don't really love because it's very clear to me that Murph the Surf wants to be the center of the story. He's working on a film about his life right now. He's already had a film made about him. He's been the subject of books. He's been the protagonist in magazine articles, New York Times pieces. I want to hear from Alan. Like, what about Alan? To me, way more handsome, way more interesting. Um, So there is just sort of an indulgence to this podcast that I don't love. Like, they are giving this guy yet another stage to tell a story that he's had the opportunity to tell over and over and over again. So, I mean, it's fine. I can't say it's terrible. I don't really like the theme music. That's a whole other conversation. So it's a thumb sideways for me. I probably will check out the next season of The Sneak, but this one, I can't say it's bad. I also can't say it's good. All right, Kevin, before we continue the podcast, let's do a little business, shall we? Let's do it. Coming up in our Crime Writers on Patreon after show, which you can get right now if you subscribe at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Kevin has a little story to tell about his medical procedure, his big surgery. I got good hospital stories. Plus, I am too much of a baby to watch episodes of Lovecraft Country, so I'm going to ask you guys what you think about it, if you've watched it. (laughs) Uh, And I also want uh, Laura Bricker and Kevin Flynn's Selling Sunset Villain Power Ranking. So I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you that question in the after show, okay? I am all over that, Rebecca. Okay, good. Now, Kevin, do we have any Patreon patron saints of the week this week? Our Patreon patron saints are Bruce Assam and Aaron Gilmore. Ooh. Bless you. What did they do to join the sainthood? They were beautiful. <laughs> they, they were saintly. They were members of our Patreon? They've supported us for a long, long time. And so. they got like picked randomly among the members of our Patreon to get shouted out in the podcast. <laughs> well, you know, try to find a little balance here. You That's know? right. That's Guys, right. Guys, girls. That's right. So Vowels. <laughs> right now at Patreon.com. Single syllables. Slash <laughs> partners in crime media. Kevin, we're going to be recording finally a new Mary with podcast, right? Now yeah, now that back. I can. Yeah. So maybe we'll... will it be out like right after, maybe a day or two after this podcast drops? Oh, sure. That's right. There's a new Leave It to Bricker coming out as well. Mm -hmm. I know Toby's working on a new Toby Balls Deep Dive Book Club podcast. And of course, you can get the after show right now and get Laura Bricker and Kevin Flynn and my Selling Sunset Villain Power Rankings right now at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. All right, moving on. I went down the hall and I looked into the first uh, smaller bedroom where one of his daughters was and I could see that she was lifeless. She wasn't moving and 
There was a lot of blood. In 1970, MPs discovered Army doctor Jeffrey McDonald beaten in his home and his wife and children brutally murdered. After the military dropped the case, civilian authorities charged McDonald for the killings nine years later. After that, the name Jeffrey McDonald was everywhere. And Jeff didn't shy away from the spotlight. The price that I paid and the price that my family has paid is too great. The Army doesn't want to look into its own state of affairs. Enter author Joe McGinnis, who agreed to split proceeds with McDonald for inside access to his defense for a book deal. Though originally doubtful, McGinnis became convinced of his guilt and said so in his classic true crime book, Fatal Vision. Here's a man who is maintaining his innocence of arguably the worst crime a person can commit, murdering his own family. And if this guy didn't do it, it's terrible what he's gone through. And if he did do it, well, he's terrible. In the podcast Morally Indefensible from Truth Media, host Mark Smerling recalls the murders and the intense ethical controversy around the book. Did McGinnis misrepresent himself? Was justice distorted? What is the cautionary tale when journalists make deals with criminals? And is McDonald's guilt still up for debate? We are going to be talking about plot points for the first four episodes of Morally Indefensible. So to remain spoiler free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to hear our thumbs up or thumbs down reviews. Now, Toby, this podcast is a bit of a turducken, is it not? A what? A turducken. It's, it's like turkey a, inside. It's a like a duck, duck inside of a turkey. Like it's meta. Like it's a. It's it's sort of about other things, right? In the media, happening around a murder case. Like, can you just like peel back a few of those layers for us? Sure. So you know the 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 reason why this case is so famous in part is because of the book Fatal Vision, which you know is one of the top selling true crime books of all time. Uh, we actually did it on the deep dive. It's very long, but also a very fast read. After that came out, and part of it, of, of this book, is that you get the first probably 80% of it is just like a typical true crime book. But then the end of it is basically making this like very detailed case for why Jeffrey McDonald is guilty, right? So it 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 lays out with like in no uncertain terms after the book came out, there were two other books that were written about the case, but even more so about Joe McGinnis's uh, work on the case. So one of them is called The Journalist and the Murderer, which is another one we've done on the deep dive. And that's uh, Janet Malcolm. It's got a very famous opening sentence, which I'm going to have to paraphrase, but says, any journalist uh, who's not too you know stupid to think things through realizes that what they do is morally indefensible. Hmm. And what follows is this pretty strong critique of McGinnis as being sort of the extreme version of what a lot of journalists do in general. And, and it's it's very, very similar to what Kevin talks about when he says, you know, you either betray the reader or you betray the subject. Which she's saying is journalism just in its nature betrays its subject. Right. And that this is just a very clear example. The other book was by Errol Morris, who did um, Thin Blue Line, um, Fog of War, and a bunch of other movies. He wrote a book called Wilderness of Error, which is what the sort of companion FX TV documentary is going to be. And in that, he really argues that McDonald is innocent and sort of takes apart both the state's and McGinnis's case against McDonald and sort of calls into question their interpretation of the evidence. 
and sort of dismissing Helena Stokely and things like that. So this is a companion podcast for a TV show based on the Errol Morris book challenging Joe McGinnis's book about the Jeffrey McDonald case. Right. <laughs> That's a ducking. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite the complicated story. But at the center of it is this case. I mean, I remember seeing the movie Fatal Vision as a kid. It was mm-hmm. very scary. Yep. And I also remember there being, and there's always been a lot of question about Jeffrey McDonald's guilt or innocence, in large part because he did put himself out there as a media figure in the time between the murders and his first trial for the murders, which was an amazing nine years later. So I'm just curious. I mean, before we talk about sort of the journalism stuff, which is sort of at the heart of this podcast, does anybody here have an opinion about the innocence or guilt of Jeffrey McDonald, the character at the very middle of this turducken? Kevin, what do you think? Have you Do you have any preconceived opinions about this? Uh, no. Uh, I just know that he was convicted. Yeah. And Toby's read a lot more, so... Toby, what do you think? Well, I, you know, I think McGinnis makes a really strong case. And even having read Errol Morris's sort of critique of that case, I'm not like 100% sure he's guilty, but... The facts of the case make it so that a lot of stuff really unlucky happened to him in order to make him look as guilty as he did, Mm. including stuff that he did himself in the aftermath and and also before the murders. I actually think one of the most analogous cases I think about with the Jeffrey McDonald case is the Scott Peterson case. And we should talk about the fact that Scott Peterson is no longer on death row. His murder um, sentence sentence was overturned, even though his conviction was not. And of course, I have famously said in our podcast discussion group, many times after we watched that documentary a couple years ago and also a lot of reading I've done my one sort of crazy true crime belief which like no one agrees with me with I'm not 100 I'm not sure that Scott Peterson did it but I will say I think that Jeffrey McDonald I think he's more likely to have done if I were going to put him on a a scale. Of course, it's all just my opinion. I wasn't there. We weren't there. But um, some of the stuff around that, just the evidence and the way the crime scenes were felt. It's a strong case. Yeah. yeah. Laura, I, you, I don't know how much of the media you've been exposed to, but do you have an opinion just from what you've heard and know? So I don't feel like I have enough because I don't feel like as of now, having listened to, what is it, four episodes of this podcast and I haven't read Fatal Vision, I don't feel like I know like a motive unless he's just like mm. a total lunatic and, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I haven't gotten that much. So I, I feel like I, I have to reserve judgment there, but I do think it was the part that I did find sort of a telling detail that sort of made me stop for a minute was everybody else has all these awful injuries. Obviously it was a horrible crime scene and he has an injury, but he's also a doctor and it was like this like sort of precise puncture through his his lung. And I was like, mm. Meantime, a two-year-old was stabbed 40-something times. Their, their fingers were nearly severed off. Of the, yeah. Like, why why do you attack a defenseless baby that hard? Yeah. The real threat in the family, the man. Yeah. Not yeah. to be sexist. But yeah. that's who you would really want to take down. Not, right. And the, pa- the pajama top stuff was also kind of crazy. Weird. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's stuff that gives me pause, but I just feel like I need to know a little more about the motive and a little more of the background. So, Laura, you know, we have all, with the exception of Toby, I think, although Toby, I think, with Strange Arrivals, you know, has some subject interviews that maybe kind of put themselves in the line a little bit, telling their truth for him in the podcast. But the three of us, Kevin, Laura, and me, Laura, we have all interviewed people who either were convicted of crimes or on their way to be being convicted of crimes and in multiple kind of scenarios you've done so professionally and also as an author and a journalist 
there is some relationship building that goes into that. And there's also some honesty that has to go into that and some lines where you are kind of telling the person what it is you're doing and you're giving them the opportunity to participate. We know that Jeffrey McDonald took a very narcissistic stance here and we hear it in his insistence on sort of being paid on the way that he inserted himself on sort of his bringing Joe McGinnis in so closely. But then we hear, you know, reenacted transcripts of the letters that Joe McGinnis wrote to Jeffrey McDonald, especially around those tapes that he asked him to record of himself where he's basically coercing him yeah. to incriminate himself and telling him contemporaneously, I'm on your side while writing what we know he ends up writing. What did you think of that? So that's not how I would have operated. That's never how I've operated. Um, you know, like you said, I can't tell you I'm going to write what you want me to write, but I can tell you that I'm going to be truthful. I'm going to be fair. I'm going to check my facts. I'm not going to be sensational. That type of information. Like that kind of goes into like you can trust me. If there's something that's off the record, it stays off the record. That type of dynamic. So first of all, they went running together. Yeah. Like on their first date. The first date. What the hell is that? <laughs> what did Joe McGinnis to like, bring some running clothes in, like the trunk of his car? Went down the beach, just took his shoes off. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. So from running to then this letter where it's like basically like you can trust me. It will be very good to see you again, to get this thing underway and to feel that I am doing something useful and constructive about it instead of just fretting about what a shit place prison must be and how absurd it seems to me that you are there. I would like very much for it to be the best book I've ever done. And in order for that to happen, I'll need a period of total immersion in all facets of your past. That's not true. Mm. I mean, it wasn't true and it was very disingenuous and I felt like the line here was very blurry. And at first I was very angry at Joe McGinnis and I was like, how can you call yourself a journalist? And then as I listened more, I was like, you know what? McDonald is just as bad. So the two of them were like made for each other, quite honestly. But it's it's not how I would have operated as a journalist and it's not how I've ever operated as one. Kevin, it's how you operate as journalists though, right? I never ran with anybody to get an interview. That's <laughs> never, never ever going to happen. <laughs> Look, I mean, I think anytime you do any kind of interview, man on the street, trying to get to a political candidate, there is a little bit of car salesman charm that has to go into it. Some people need a lot of probing, some people prodding, some people don't. But with criminals and people who have a lot on the line, you do have to kind of find a way to convince them that it's, if not in their interest, it's not against their interest not to do it. So I always approached people by saying, look, I'm not going to try to get you to confess and you don't need to convince me you're innocent because like in reality... Like, that's not going to, like, when you're going to confess to me, that's not going to, when you put that in a fucking book, that's not going to really work, right? <laughs> All of that good stuff about the crime, what happened the night of, right, comes out of trial. I'm going to get that there. What I really want from you, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Defendant, is I want to find out about your parents. I want to know, like, you know, was there a f fire in your house when you were seven years old? What did you, you know, that kind of stuff. Stuff I'm not going to get there that's going to fill in the rest of the blanks, right? And he tried to get that from Jeff uh, McDonald with all these audio tapes, which is really kind of so weird. So weird, right? It, it was weird. It, it was weird. But there is a relationship you have to have, and there are lines there. Jeff agreed, but he had terms of his own. His legal fees were mounting, and with his freedom on the line, he needed money. 
So they struck a deal. The writer and the accused murderer. Jeff would get a third of the proceeds from the book, and Joe would get his full access. The idea that you would ever pay to make a deal like you're going to get a percentage of the book that I write. That was so bad that you have no control over. They're like, why would you give that up? I mean, you can't, there's son of Sam laws in many states now. You can't do that. Anyway, we also know that publishers would never go for that today. They don't buy books from convicted criminals. Even publishers realize it's a bad look, right? But, you know, in the end, it, it comes down to, do you want to tell your story? Or are you going to be beholden to somebody else? And just the fact that, you know, McGinnis did what he did, like you would just never do that today. Toby? I mean, this is just really like a surface look at these issues uh, in the podcast. You know, he was basically, McGinnis was embedded with McDonald's defense team yeah. during his trial in like North the, Carolina. Like the, like the, like the, the staircase. staircase? Yeah. He lived with them. And part of it was that, you know, he was the one person who wasn't involved in the legal defense who was there for McDonald to hang out with. So on McDonald's side, and I think to a certain extent, McGinnis's side became genuine friends, you know? And I think that's part of the betrayal that McDonald felt was like, hey, you're the dude who I was like having beers with while I was on trial for my life. And then you turn around and do this. And McDonald had shopped around trying to find a writer to tell his story. It wasn't like McGinnis was like, oh, this sounds interesting. I'll get in touch with him and see if we can work something out. But what you, what you kind of get, and, and you get it from this, and you get it even more strongly in the book, is that these guys are just both super, super manipulative. Yeah. Another part of McDonald's feeling of, of shock and betrayal was that he was the one who ended up getting manipulated, mm. right? He's so used to, in his life just being this like super successful, good-looking, charming guy that he just got away with stuff. And in this one case, McGinnis turned it against him. So McDonald's like, I'm going to be able to charm this guy. I'm just going to tell him all this stuff and he's going to totally buy it. And McGinnis didn't. McGinnis lied to him though, Toby. No, I'm not, I'm not, de- I'm not defending McGinnis. No. And, 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 and by the way, like, I don't think there's anything wrong with embedding. I mean, if the staircase if those filmmakers, and by the way, I will argue this is why I called The Staircase the first part of it, not the whole the second season, but the first part, The Citizen Kane of True Crime, is because the filmmakers are embedded with a defense, and the filmmakers, it seems, they tell the story in a way that makes the viewer go back and forth, depending on which episode you watch, guilty, innocent, guilty, innocent, guilty. Like, we don't mm-hmm. know, right? And they so they sort of show us every aspect of it. And, you know, you can kind of draw your own conclusion as to where they are, but they just show us. They show us we're the ones left to wonder. Like but We also feel like they're, they're keeping their subject at a distance. I mean, they're embedded in whatnot, but they're not. I don't think so. But I but but they also don't. I don't feel like they're lying to him. I don't. Right. I, and yeah. we hear Joe, how Joe McGinnis bald face lied to him after he was convicted. He was writing him letters telling him how bad he felt about his conviction. Maybe and then he maybe he did at the time, but then asking him to sort of dig deeper on the tapes. No one will ever hear these but me. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. that's a lie. Basically, I would like you to untighten your belt just a notch or two and risk a description of your life with Colette that might be more realistic than ideal. Don't be bashful. I am the only one who hears these tapes. That's just a lie. 
I don't know. I find that, I mean, that's malpractice as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it's morally indefensible. <laughs> well, the afterword of his book of Fatal Vision is like a very, very long response to all this, all these criticisms. Like he basically just takes Malcolm's book, which is making all these, making all these statements about McGinnis's tactics and he gives his defense. So if people are interested in this case, all, all three of those books are very interesting. You know, you know, this makes me just want to say, what? I can swear now, right? This isn't the video. Yeah. Fuck every single person who complains about Sarah Koenig's relationship with Adnan Syed. <laughs> Listen to what this guy did and then tell me there's anything inappropriate about Sarah Koenig asking Adnan about what he cooks in the prison kitchen. Like that is just literally when you have a source that you're talking to for a long time, it is natural and normal. And it would be weird if you didn't have some sort of relationship with the source that made you ask questions about other aspects of their lives. So all of you listening to this right now who have heard Morally Indefensible and still think that Sarah Koenig did something aberrant and weird and like... I don't know, being nice to Adnan Syed when they talked on the phone. By asking him about life in prison. You can go fuck yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Laura, when you were writing uh, Lie After Lie, did you have anyone ever come up and say, oh, I'll talk to you, but how much are you going to pay me? Oh, (laughs) Oh, all the time. And I was like, I'm sorry, that's not how it works. I'm not the National Enquirer. I'm sorry. No, it's not how it works. Why did you think that's how it worked? Yeah. You idiot people. (laughs) You went up on it. You You went to trial. Right, you went out. You testified. You said your whole story. It's out there. Yeah, it's worth zero. Yeah, and if you want to write eight hundred thousand words, well, good luck. But fuck you. I'm not giving you any money. Do you know why people think that's how it works? Because of Catch and because Kill and like ha- the National Enquirer. Because yeah, because outlets like that do pay people. Yeah, to like. Oh, but they hear about oh, I sold my life story. Yeah, there's no such thing as selling your. life I mean, you're the story. fucking neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not giving you twenty thousand dollars for your quote unquote story. You're the mailman. You're the you're you're the person who may or may not have seen a lady with a floppy hat walking by your window. Oh yeah. my God, the floppy hat. You know, that's actually, I know this is a little off topic, but we just reviewed a podcast that fell over itself and and like literally the host apologized to us for not giving this like in-depth profile of the victims or whatever. Mm. This podcast is a really good example and this story about like why sometimes it's actually it would be weird and wrong to actually do that when the story that's not what the story is about. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like we don't hear jack shit about the victims in this podcast. Not yet anyway, no. No, I mean but you know why? Not because they don't matter and their lives don't matter. It almost like makes it it almost is like it would be insulting to like their memories to try to like build something out there. When that's not what this narrative is focusing, on. you know what I mean? Like, I do feel that way sometimes when I when I see all these like tweets, like hashtag her name was Mrs. McDonald. Yes, I know. You know, he she was murdered and it was horrible. And we're talking about this horrible psychotic guy and this like journalistic malpractice. Are people tweeting him. that fifty years later? Not about this case. Okay, but right. about pretty much every other. All case. right, well, I know those are the cases. I, I believe in victim centric stories and victim focused stories when that is the story. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Right. And this is a good example of like it, it didn't even occur to me to miss that in this and the other podcasts we review. They're like falling all over themselves. So, Toby, you know, McGinnis can be a jerk and McDonald can be guilty, right? Those two things can happen at the same time. Correct. Okay. (laughs) Next question. We will catch you later. (laughs) (laughs) Got a cat, Laura. (laughs) Yeah, I I think it's, it's important to separate the two things. And I can't remember. I don't think Malcolm tries to make the case that McDonald's innocent, just that he was done wrong. 
I mean, it is, it's, it's pretty shocking, quite honestly, to hear. And another thing is that I think the, uh, the podcast puts its finger on the scale a little with whoever's doing uh, McGinnis's voice. <laughs> in, in the recreations? Yeah, it sounds like kind of a cross between like a vampire and a junkie. Of some, it's like, I need more. I need more of your, your secrets and your emotions. I mean, it is, it is such, he's, he's misrepresenting what he's about to do. Uh, he's preying on this guy who, guilty or innocent, has really, like, in his mind, has this one outlet for, for his thoughts, this one person who he can talk to about this stuff. And he's about to be betrayed, and you know it. And McDonald doesn't, as you you know, hear him talking about these things. Now, not all the stuff makes them sound very good. Like McDonald, as you learn, is is like a total narcissist. He's a sociopath. Even if he's innocent, he's he's got these issues. Even Dick Cavett had a problem with Dick Cavett. And that guy's that guy's talked to a lot of people. <laughs> well, I think we should do what we do. Let our listeners know. Should they check out the podcast Morally Indefensible? It's a companion podcast to an FX series that is about a book that's a counterpoint to another book that is about a real life murder case. Lots of turducken going on there. Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Morally Indefensible? Um, I'm going to go with thumbs up because this definitely did bring out a little bit of the Brichter scale rage for me because I was, uh, as somebody that's worked as a journalist and as an investigator, listening to the methods used um, made me kind of rage as I was walking around town this morning. So I would say thumbs up. It's an interesting story. It poses a lot of interesting ethical questions. And uh, the case itself is also very fascinating. So I'm curious to hear what else we're going to hear about the floppy hat woman as it goes on. Toby Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Morally Indefensible? Uh, this is kind of a tough one for me. I, you know, in, in part, I mean, it really seems like it's sort of a promo for this series that they're going to have on FX. But I just, there's so many interesting aspects to the writing of Fatal Vision and, you know, the follow-up books and all that stuff. And a lot of it's very nuanced. And I think there, there's almost none of that stuff here. A, the fact that the documentary that it's promoting is named after Errol Morris's book kind of lets you know what their take on that is. I don't think things are quite as clear cut as they've been put so far. And maybe that'll come back around. But I just, I, I think it's taken a really rich subject and just giving it a very shallow treatment. So I think part of it's well done, but I'm, I'm going to kind of go on a, uh, a soft thumbs down. What about you, Kevin Flynn? I'm going uh, thumbs up on this one. I think it's really interesting. I th- think the public will like it, but journalists and writers are going to eat this podcast up. It's a murder mystery and a moral mystery. Uh, I did not know an awful lot about this case. It's a good way to learn it. But, uh, yeah, I think uh, it uh, it does give us something to think about on a different level hmm. that our listeners probably aren't going to relate to. It sings to us on a different frequency. And uh, I'm uh, looking forward to the last couple episodes. I'm a thumbs up. I'm a thumbs up. I have to say I'm a fan of Mark Smerling. Of course, he was one of the creators of The Jinx. Great true crime, crime documentary. Yeah. One of the creators of Crime Town. He's also one of the creators of one of my all-time favorite documentaries, Catfish. And by the way, I was producer of Catfish, the TV show, which oh, really? underrated show. It's freaking great and interesting. Anyway, um, I'll say that my 
first of all, the podcast is it's head and shoulders way better made than the other podcast reviewed in terms of its production quality, its tape gathering, its writing, the music, the way that it's mixed, the way that it's put together, which is what I would expect from a podcast uh, from Mark Smerling. I have some structural problems with the storytelling. There are some sections that really drag and are not particularly tight, particularly around alternative theories of the crime. There's sort of too much spent time talking about the logistics of the many miscarriages of justice and overturned convictions and so forth. I really think that stuff could have been tighter. That being said, I think the Jeffrey McDonald case is an iconic American story and you know, this is not the first turducken to be made of, yeah. of this story. And I, I think it's well done. And I think it's a story that a lot of people, you know, would find interesting if they haven't checked it out yet. So, yeah, I'm a thumbs up for Morally Indefensible. All right. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime, crime of, of the, the week. week. Listen to you. You're back. It's, it was not great. Almost. It'll get better and better each week, so <laughs> I promise. Samir Anwar's parents remember when the five-year-old New Zealand boy shoved a Lego piece up his nose. Neither mom and dad nor the doctor could find it, and because he wasn't feeling any pain, they assumed the piece would pass safely through his digestive system. Flash forward two years, right after mom baked a fragrant batch of pink cupcakes, Samir took a big sniff and then blew out the missing piece. (laughs) The arm of a Lego character was covered in fungus, but otherwise harmless. The Guardian reports his parents were grossed out. Yes, rightfully. But the boy was psyched to retrieve his lost piece. Incidentally, in 2018, a group of doctors hoping to ease parents' fears each safely swallowed a Lego piece to see how long it would take to, get this, literally shit a brick. (laughs) Now, panel, (laughs) the Lego was a real surprise. But what was this boy hiding up his other nostril? Lara Bricker, I'm going to start with you. Um, A little snack for later. (laughs) (laughs) He just had an endless supply of that, too. (laughs) Toby Ball, what do you think was in this boy's other nostril? Uh, My TV remote. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's good. Kenneth, what about you? I think it was the Eagle Diamond that they never recovered from that. I mean, wasn't it just boogers? Let's be real, it was just boogers. It's a lot of boogers. <laughs> and let me just tell you one thing. I would 100% rather sniff a Lego brick than step on one. I'm so oh. glad those days are over for me. We should probably end on that note. But before we do, Lara Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week? We do. And I'm before I tell you about the actual cat of the week, I would like to thank Melissa Cara, one of the Brichter Scale members, very active, who turned me on to the Daily Steve B on Instagram this week. This is a cat in New York City, a black and white cat who lives with like eight other cats. And his mom has taught him to use little buttons. And so he pushes the buttons and they say things like snuggle, eat outside. And so thanks to that, Rocky Flintstone, one of my cats, is now getting some buttons. They've arrived today. (laughs) And so far, his button that he likes says, where is Ken? Where is Ken? Where is Ken? Um, Because he's clearly Ken's cat. (laughs) So thank you, Melissa. The actual, uh, as a follow-up to last week's dead or napping, Drew sent us a picture of his cat, Fluff. 
The entire first week after we adopted her, I constantly was sure she was dead. And she does kind of look dead. And on one picture, she's sort of laying in a circle that almost looks like a crime scene bubble. So Hmm. dead or napping. Nice. Dead or napping. The brand new game introduced in this Cat of the Week segment. (laughs) All right, Laura Bricker, folks want to reach out to you. Of course, they can go to our official Crime Writers on Facebook discussion group. But if they want to follow you on Twitter and send you their pets to be nominated for Cat of the Week, doesn't have to be a cat, by the way. How can they find you there? At Laura Bricker on Twitter. And Tony Ball, folks want to reach out to you on Twitter and help you sort of unlock the mystery that is the turducken of some of the stories we reviewed on this podcast. How can they find you on Twitter? Uh, they can find me at Toby Ball NH. And also, uh, congratulations to our friend Rabia for the launch of The Hidden Gin. That's right. Yeah. Her new podcast. Her brand new podcast from iHeartMedia. Same network as uh, your podcast, right, Toby? Yep. And it, we're both under Aaron Mankey's uh, umbrella. I know. It's very exciting. Getting that sweet lore money. We feel very, very excited to be in your <laughs> presence. Really. You guys are, you, it's amazing that you're even on the show anymore. <laughs> I think about that all the time. You gotta pick up the slack, Rebecca. <laughs> Kevin Flynn, if folks want to reach out to you on Twitter, how can they find you? I am still at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy or follow the show at Crime Writers On. And you can watch this very podcast on our new show produced exclusively for Facebook Watch. Find it by searching your app or at Facebook.com slash watch slash Crime Writers On Podcast. As always, I encourage you to join our amazing community and our official Crime Writers on Facebook discussion group. You can also check out our regular old Facebook page. Support the show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media and you will get the Crime Writers on After Show, Married with Podcast, Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcast, and Laura Bricker's Leave it to Bricker Podcast. Our theme song was performed by the New York Scott Jazz Ensemble and used with permission. Our line editor is the handsome and bearded Henry Lavoie. Our social media maven is fellow Taco Bell stan and amazing manicure recipient Meredith Plunkett. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our New Hampshire basement where we just made a podcast about another podcast based on a book about another book about a famous American crime. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. later. Thank you so, so much for doing it. I can't tell you. I'm sure you're getting inundated with requests, and I really appreciate it. No, you would be the first people I would want to talk to anyway. Oh. So. Oh. Oh, I, I, I taped that. The New that. York Times. FYI, I taped that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I taped her saying that. <laughs> New promo. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you so much, Madeline. Partners in crime media. media.